So we're left with this dilemma. You know, you've got the H. pylori here and you've got Laetrile there. You know, so what is scientific debate and what is medical misinformation? Dr. Jonathan Bakhtari. You can see it. I mean, it's crystal clear. I think it's going to really revolutionize things. Goes, which is a big game changer. All information discussed or provided by Jonathan Bactari, MD, Dr. Bactari, and or his affiliates and guests are for educational purposes only. The information discussed and provided is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical concern or condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of any information discussed or provided by Dr. Bactari or his affiliates and guests. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call 911 immediately. So welcome to another episode of Bakhtari MD. Today we're going to be t- talking about a touchy subject. I know this is on the internet and people are talking about it, but this idea of medical misinformation uh, hurting people, which we don't want. And how do we sort that out? I mean, how do we figure out what is medical misinformation and what is true scientific debate? Now, I can just tell you from my own career you know, what I learned in medicine 20 years ago, a lot of it is the same, but a lot of it has changed. And I'm going to give you some examples of that, how how things that we thought were dogma 10, 20, 30 years ago are not the case. And at a certain point, someone had to challenge that dogma. So we need to come up with a forum that people can challenge dogma, but they need to challenge it with additional science and not just hyperbole or just anecdotes, but to challenge it in a way that requires a response. So I think the best way I can kind of navigate this whole topic is to give you some examples of both, you know, give you examples of you know, scientific debate that was maybe not squashed, but certainly resisted, and then give you an example of really medical misinformation that, you know, potentially hurt people. So let's look at that and then come back and see if this helps us understand the problem, at least. Uh, So the first thing I want to talk about is the history of, of stomach ulcers and gastritis, I have an amazing poster child case about the cause of ulcers. And, you know, throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s, most ulcers and gastritis were thought to be caused by lifestyle issues such as diet and stress and potentially acid. And this was the dogma. And and this led to a lot of people being ineffectively treated. And it was essentially on some levels often a chronic illness that they had to battle. And back in 1982, two doctors, Barry Marshall and Robin Warren, looked at the tissues of people with gastritis and ulcers and noticed that there was almost always a bacteria growing in it. Uh, That bacteria later became called uh, Helicobacter pylori, but at that time it was not identified. Their findings occurred in 1982 That's when they reported it. And uh, to be frank, it wasn't well received. It didn't fit with the dogma of the day. Uh, There was a feeling that the stomach had so much acid, how could any bacteria survive? And it was pretty much poo-pooed. And 
they were really, really stuck because they had really no way to prove it any further. And he, uh, both of them were not allowed to do uh, human experiments because they, this was such a far-fetched idea to exposing humans to this bacteria. And so they were really stuck. And so what happened was that uh, Dr. Marshall finally took matters into his own hand and ingested H. pylori, which he got from the gut of a sick patient, essentially put it in a broth and drank it. A few days later, he developed nausea and vomiting and fatigue and a biopsy done of his stomach, was able to culture out H. pylori, uh, proving that the bug was actually causing his symptoms. And um, this sort of helped turn the ship around, but it was a very slow ship. So this ha- the first report was in 1982, and in 1994, the National Institute of Health Consensus Development Conference formally recognized H. pylori as the link causing ulcers. 1996, the FDA approved the first antibiotic therapy for the ulcer. In 1997, the CDC launched a national campaign to educate healthcare workers about the association of H. pylori and ulcers. And it wasn't until 2005 when Dr. Marshall and Dr. Warren won the Nobel Prize for their finding of H. pylori as the causative agent in ulcers, gastritis, and maybe even stomach cancer. So the question really is, why did it take that long? And I think, you know, in medicine, dogmas form. And when you come up with an idea that's against dogma, there's, you know, human nature being what it is, there's resistance. And, you know, obviously, it would have been much better if they were able to present their evidence and move forward and start treating people in the 80s and not let people suffer, um, but it is what it is. So that's a really great example of, you know, scientific debate not being squashed, but not being welcome because people were already entrenched and they had their own idea of what a certain disease is, how it should be treated, and don't rock the boat. So that's very disconcerting because that kind of approach could theoretically hurt all of us because that's not the only example. There's many, many other examples of of things we do today that were crazy to do you know, 10, 20 years ago. And at some point, somebody had to bring that up and challenge it. And I think, do we really, really want to put people like Dr. Marshall in a situation where their thesis is so resisted that they have to resort to, you know, doing something like they did. So we want people to challenge dogma in a scientific way, not with anecdotes, not with just hyperbole, but we want people to challenge the status quo with more science. And I think, you know, that's going to be the theme of this conversation in the sense that there's nothing wrong with challenging the dogma. But I think the way to challenge it is to come up with science to challenge it. As many of you know, my favorite quote uh, that I've said in other videos is the plural of a lot of anecdotes is not data. 
So instead of coming up with anecdotes and saying, hey, I took this and currently and I didn't get COVID, so you should take it too, is not the right way to go. I think you know doing randomized, double-blinded studies and bringing more science to the situation is the way to go. So now that we've covered sort of what happens when scientific debate is squashed, let's talk about when medical misinformation is put out and the damage that can do. Uh, one of the interesting things that I've noticed um, in my career is there have been some fads that have come and gone. And this particular fad was to treat cancer. And I think it really took off in the 60s. And really, uh, you know, I became familiar with it in the 80s uh, when I was starting my career and into the 90s. And that was a substance called laetril. Laetril was a substance that was gotten from the uh, from apricot seeds and other fruits and nuts seeds. And what was interesting about laetril is one of the byproducts of taking laetril was cyanide. And so it really became fashionable to think that laetril was an alternative to cancer therapy that would cure cancers. And what happened was a lot of the data that came out looking at studies showed no benefit. But that didn't stop people from touting its benefits and giving hope to, obviously, a lot of people who were really in need of a cure or therapy. Even in the 90s and 80s, you know, um, clinics popped up, some in Mexico and other places that were lateral clinics and cancer patients from the United States would go down there to get treatment. And there was a desperate effort to get a hold of laetrile in some patients because they thought that that was the cure that was sort of being withheld from them. Part of that whole picture was, oh, laetrile is free. It's not produced by big pharma. So nobody has an incentive to really prove that it works and that there's this big conspiracy to preventing it from getting out because you know, drug companies want to use really expensive chemotherapy and they don't want you to have this really cheap thing that works so effectively. But you know what happened is that unfortunately, a lot of people uh, forgoed getting traditional chemotherapy that may or may not have had some impact. Um, and you may want to correct me on this, but I think uh, Steve McQueen may have gone to Mexico to do this and, it, and maybe encourage some of that fad back then. A lot of other people did too. And the point really is that is medical misinformation because a lot of people suffered. A lot of people who might have gotten help went there and had their hopes on something that basically was not proven to be effective. So that's how medical misinformation works because you don't have the science. You simply have hyperbole. You have anecdotes and people wind up, people wind up getting hurt. So we're left with this dilemma, you know, you've got the H. pylori here and you got laetrile there, you know, so what is scientific debate and what is medical misinformation? And I think that's a really, really important difference. Before, you know, we, I, we even go into that, I want to talk to you about other things that I've seen change in my career that challenge dogma. I mean, there was a time even before my career in the 1970s where people would do, if people had blood clots in the leg, they would actually tie off the big uh, vein in their stomach, their inferior vena cava, to prevent blood clots from traveling to their lungs. We don't do that anymore, and but at a certain point, that was an optional one. You know, when you look at tonsillectomies in 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, you know, for pediatric cases of 
recurrent pharyngitis or sore throats, it was at an extremely high rate. You know, back in the 60s, you know, 70s, many children got their tonsils taken up, and we now know unnecessarily. We look at the rate of C-sections and how it peaked. There was data that maybe some of those C-sections were not necessary. Look at the rate of back surgeries, for example, in people with chronic back issues, and the data uh, comes out later that some of those surgeries are unnecessary because they don't change the course. You look at, you know, whether, you know, what group should have mammograms and how effective is it in certain age groups and if you're 40 to 50 and 50 and higher a lot of that has changed and evolved so we can never say like well this is it and this is the way it's going to be what changes that scientific debate and people challenging the current status with more rigorous science so i think what we need to do is look at this concept of medical misinformation versus scientific debate. And the way we can sort it out is if we think something is wrong, you know, let's put our, you know, pedal to the metal and prove it wrong by rigorous, rigorous scientific research. And, you know, I think there's a tendency in human nature to, you know, rely on anecdotes. So, you know, I, a friend of mine had this and he took that and he's better. Well, unfortunately, a lot of things are self-limiting. Look at the pandemic currently. You know, if you look at, you know, most healthy young people who get the coronavirus, the vast majority of them will recover. 97, 99 plus percent will recover. So let's take, for example, COVID-19 and young people, you know, where there's also in some groups a 99% recovery. It's really hard when you have something that essentially you're going to recover from anyway and say, well, you know, I took vitamin L or, you know, vitamin G or whatever, and uh, I got better in a week or two. Well, if 90% are getting better in a week or two, I'm not sure what that really proves. But that's the problem. That And this is where medical misinformation comes from, where we simply look at something which is more than likely going to turn out a certain way anyway, and then try something and then offer that as proof that, ah, you see, it worked. And you, you hear that all the time uh, on the internet and other places where you know, a certain person took this and then they recovered from COVID. Well, they were recovering anyway. So the answer for medical misinformation versus scientific debate is to bring scientific data to bear. And at the end of the day, if it works or if it's true, the science will be there, it will be reproducible, and there won't be any doubts usually when the data is there. Almost everything that I have seen in my medical career that there's a raging debate that never goes away is probably because it doesn't work. Because things that work, we eventually get the data for the most part, right? So I don't want to say 100% of the time, but that's really the way it works. At the end of the day, if it works, we get to the bottom. If it doesn't work, sometimes the raging debate. The analogy I, I like to give when I'm talking to medical students or residents is, you know, you take antibiotics for an example. You know, there's no doctor anywhere in the world that says, I don't believe in antibiotics. Why is it that there is no doctor that doesn't believe in antibiotics? You know why? Because it works. It's only when things don't work long-term 
that there's this controversy. For the most part, we're going to get to the bottom of it. If it works, we're not going to be withholding it. The issue really is when something doesn't work or doesn't really work well or doesn't work well enough that it's significantly different than not taking it, there is the rub, if that makes sense. So I think the last thing I want to talk about is who then is the judge and jury of what is scientific debate and what is, you know, medical misinformation. That's a very touchy subject because even if you're a physician and you have a lot of experience, yeah, that gives you a big advantage, at least in trying to make that separation. I think it becomes harder and harder for someone who's not in the medical world to figure that out. And I think the only other tricky part is to say, well, I'm sure the FDA and the CDC, you know, they have doctors, so I'm sure they've gotten it right. Well, as we saw with H. pylori and as we've seen with some of the other changes that, you know, agencies make, they also evolve as new data comes in. So it's not always that they're wrong necessarily, but they change based on new data coming in. And sometimes they change slow, and sometimes they change fast as the new data comes in. But I think the rub is who is going to be judging what is medical misinformation, what is true scientific debate that needs to be had so we can duke it out and you know figure out if Laetrile works or doesn't work, or H. pylori does cause you know, stomach gastritis and stomach ulcers. So this this is one area where I don't think I have the, all the answers. I really don't know what is the answer. How do we separate out medical misinformation from true scientific debate, especially if you're not a doctor or in the medical world? If you know how to do it, please leave it in the comments below. I really would like to know, how are we going to address this problem? Who is going to judge medical misinformation versus scientific debate? And what's that going to look like? Do you have any ideas? Please leave them in the comment below. Tell me what you think. Am I missing something? Is there a better way to sort this out? Let me know. Thank you for listening. You can check out my website, jonathanbakhtarimd.com, to sign up for my newsletter. And you can watch this full episode over on my YouTube channel, BakhtariMD, where you can leave questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes. As always, be well. Thank you. Thank you.